right. so that the first time uh, I I've just recently found out about Niobium. Yeah, there's a company on the domestic market uh, WA One. Yeah, and they've had a significant intercept uh, in WA, and it's caused the market. Uh, it's caused market mania. What is Niobium? I've never heard of it. I think it's a micro alloy, and from what I understand, it's a it's a pretty scarce resource. So the competitive landscape in terms of Niobium, there's a private company in Brazil that's responsible for 80% of the exports globally. There's a Niobium deposit in Canada. I'm not too familiar with how big that is. I think it's called Niobay or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, recently WA1. Now with the addressable market, I think it be, can be used as a micro alloy for steel. So from what I gather, it's something that they can kind of use and mix with the steel and it reduces the weight by 25%, mm. right? So the use cases are going to be used for infrastructure. I think I heard someone say that 300 grams of niobium can reduce the weight of a car by 200 kilograms. Really? Yeah. So so it seems like a super resource. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, learning a little bit more about it, but it's definitely the talk of the town so with, and it's something to kind of keep an eye on. So, you know, like with uh, steel... Uh, you've got like the current alternatives are like aluminium where it's more malleable and it's lighter weight or you've got like, you know, sort of carbon fibre. Uh, is carbon fibre still or no? It's different. I think it's different. <laughs> <laughs> but but al- aluminium <laughs> aluminium is uh, a more malleable version of steel, right? Like yeah. more or less. Um, would you say like niobium is different to aluminium in, in like its traits or...? Yeah, I, I, I really don't know too much about it, but it's definitely in contention at the moment, especially with the domestic market. Yeah. Uh, WA1 since October is up like 3,000% or something like wow. that. It's absolutely ridiculous Something's because tabs on. it's it's so scarce and it's a world-class uh, resource that they've come across. We're waiting for more say results to come out in the next couple of weeks, but it's definitely a company to watch. Yeah. However, you know, I'm not the Niobium expert, unfortunately, <laughs> for the listeners, but... Uh, I'll clue you in on to what to look for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of Niobium's addressable market, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, there's there's a lot out there. So. And what are uh, your what are your thoughts on lithium and gold? What makes them interesting? Gold because it's a hyper uh, a hedge against hyperinflation. Yeah. I think it's a really really hot commodity. I mean, the price of gold isn't really that fantastic. Mm. However, with the economic climate, I think gold is going to have a renewed interest. People are going to be buying into gold ETFs and physical gold contracts, mm. um, and I think that you know some of these uh, because of that. I think there's going to be a lot more gold explorers come out over the next two years because of inflation. Yeah, and it's not like uh, inflation has been a hot topic or anything lately, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 pretty grim, pretty grim. Yeah, have and you been keeping an eye on that yourself as well, like with the RBA. Uh, yeah. changing their rates to yeah. combat inflation? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, gold is, you know, historically it's been a, a fairly like uninteresting commodity like up until the point, like uh, at least up until recently Yeah. Uh, when, you know, like at the start of COVID, I think gold was kind of wasn't doing too much. Yep. And now that we're sort of in the latest cycles of the hyperinflation and all the quantitative easing and all that sort of stuff where – Starting to see gold reach, you know, close to its all-time highs, or or it's at its all-time highs. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I think I think it's definitely an interesting, 
you know, commodity, it doesn't have a lot of use case other than sole value, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely interesting to me. I think um, I'm probably more interested in like lithium. Like I, I'm only interested in gold if it makes me money. Yeah. But yeah. lithium, I can get behind the story and the, like the renewable vehicles and you know, sort of uh, the implications for your average consumer. Like and you know, potentially looking around and seeing you know, half or if not all the new cars being manufactured, being... Yeah, absolutely. Huge addressable of- market, especially with the um, our efforts to reduce our carbon footprint yeah. and to uh, to reach our target. You know, that was outlined in the Paris Agreement. Yeah. So let's, let's touch on like uh, these speculative mining companies. So when you're doing your assessment, um, I know you've come across some new tools in evaluating uh, the like firstly the different life cycle stages of of the mining process yeah yeah but then also how that relates to when it's a good time to invest in these stocks so i think there's a a certain model do you want to yeah look um i look at the lassonde curve okay so when it's important when you started to invest into resource stocks yeah you understand the, the the life cycle of the mine yeah. You know, in every different phase, I think a good way to look into that too, not, not only is it a good way to understand the life cycle of the mine because it breaks it down in terms of phases, yeah. but it's directly correlated with the share price movement in these corresponding periods. Yeah. And that's called the Lassonde curve. I think it's coined from uh, Pierre Lassonde, uh, who's a, who was a legendary gold trader. Yeah, we like that. And I've been using that and it's kind of helped me break the phases down. It's helped me kind of process it from a fundamental standpoint um, and yeah, it's it's a, it's something that I kind of want to familiarize myself with uh, further. And I found myself mm. over the last couple of weeks uh, going over metallurgy reports, pre, uh, preliminary economic assessments of the businesses. Yeah. And it's becoming very very clear to me that this is a very very dangerous game. Yeah. Um, and it's no wonder why some of these resource stocks, or most of them, fail. It's yeah. very very hard to go from a concept and an explorer phase to production. It's very few and far in between and it's becoming very, very clear. So like would you say there, there's, there's generally patterns in, in the stock price during different phases of the mining cycle? Like do you tend to see price action uh, follow like a certain trend during like different phases again and again or is it kind of unique? Like what do you think? Yeah, so there are a couple of phases to look for. So yeah. the first one that happens earlier on in the Lassonde curve is the discovery phase. So when they've started to drill and they're coming out with their assay results, a lot of uh, it causes a lot of market mania, especially if it's you know high grade and a pretty good at a pretty good uh, width. Yeah, uh, and the speculators you know cause the share price obviously to to go up as that resource uh, resource is further defined. Mm. The speculators tend to leave, and then it kind of is directly followed by uh, followed by an orphan period. As you know, you've got your preliminary economic assessment, your pre feasibility studies, and your DFS. Um, but yeah, so that's the first area, you know, the drilling. Technically, obviously, you want to be in before that in the pre-discovery phase. Yeah. Um, so that's where you want to get involved. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think it's definitely worth looking at, you know, geophysical uh, data. Yeah. You know, the geology formations and, you know, you want to look at the geochemistry data sets because you may, if you get good at that, you may have an early indication that you're sitting on a deposit and you'll be in a better position to assess that likelihood. Mm. And I think it could be quite rewarding. And that's where I've you know, just gotten into and, and I'm really yeah, excited to see kind of how that plays out. 
The second phase or the second massive move, um, according to the Lausanne curve, mm. happens when a company uh, goes from operation into development. Yeah. And I think because of that, there's a re-rate due to the de-risking events um, over that life cycle. So yeah. it, it is pretty high risk, but once the economics are worked out, it's deemed to be economically viable. I think uh, that re-rate happens yeah. um, after they've uh, – got the funding and then mm. they can kind of go into uh, operation can we can we touch on that a bit more so you know like you've got the different phases for mining companies you've got like concept pre-discovery the discovery the feasibility um, development and then you know sort of the actual operation and production right yep how do you know as an investor or as a speculator you know early is too early and too late you know you're sort of in when the crowd is already like you know it's all been priced in you know like how do you decide i guess this model helps um but in your mind can you sort of spell it out a little bit more in layman's terms like why you feel the discovery phase is more advantageous versus say like the orphan phase or the other stages i think the discovery i think uh speculators move in the market yeah right um and, and it's just you know market psychology you know, I think a lot of people kind of get involved, especially if it's a good drilling. But the reality is, you know, the life cycle of the mining and going from stage one to operation is a 10-year process. And I think that uh, people, especially with the mining industry, seem to be kind of, you know, have this mercenary approach where they mm. like to trade companies, you know, based on news catalysts. And I think that things really do dry up. Um, after that initial discovery, after they've drilled all the holes and they're going into the um, the start of the feasibility studies, mm. uh, I think it becomes, you know, less attractive. Right. Um, and most people don't say the course. Like they don't buy into a mining company while they're in the concept phase and hold for the 10 years, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure people do it, but it, it just doesn't seem yeah. like a common occurrence because it seems that... Uh, after that initial market mania, they will yeah. move on to another opportunity. And, and I'm guilty of this. Like I, you know, if a stock is sitting at like 50 million or 70 million market cap for six years, it's not going to get my attention. Yeah, exactly. I, I, look, I'm guilty of it as well, man. I, I definitely like to move my money where there's momentum. Yeah, I think um, naturally people invest uh, or speculate on mining companies after they've seen uh, like some expansion and that usually comes with initial results from the pre-feasibility or, or like during the discovery phase where they do initial drilling into um, an area and they find certain percentage of, you know, whatever from the metallurgy re- reports. Yep. Um, and, and they speculate but most people kind of, they don't understand, you know, they're not equipped with how long the, the general cycle takes and then they lose interest or like, you might even see the team change, right? Like they run through issues, they can't find funding and then one guy steps out and then, you know, this super qualified person comes in and people speculate on that. But there's still the challenges of like getting the right team, getting the right partners, getting a Chinese whale investor involved yeah. to fund the whole project <laughs> yeah. to get it to production. Yeah, yeah, What absolutely. are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think it's, you know, it seems – you know, because it's a really extended period of time to wait for your investment to mature, it's better to just time the market around those regions. Um, but as, as I said, I think people, you know, I think this is a really good model to use, yeah. the Lausanne curve. 
um, to, to combat it. Maybe it's going to help you time your entries and it's going to give you a better understanding of what to expect. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with holding it, but you don't want to be like me when I first got into some of the resource stocks. They were in the orphan period. I had no idea there was an orphan period. Yeah. So I was thinking, oh, I can't wait for off-take agreements. I didn't really kind of look at um, – I didn't make some of the economic considerations that one would make. Yeah. And I think that, I think it's one of the hardest uh, sectors to invest in because of the amount of variables that you have to consider. Um, the change in commodity prices and operating costs, mm. I, it, it's very, very difficult, but it's very rewarding. It's, it's a space that I think that if you spend enough time in it, you could really hone a lot of skills. I mean, for your financial modeling, you know, uh, you know, mineral processing, uh, everything. It, mm. it, it really is a one-stop shop, but I think it's also uh, the most difficult. Yeah. So. Yeah, look, it sounds like a, it's a common pitfall to kind of start investing during the orphan, orphan period where like not much goes on and you're just kind of sitting there like, you know, praying for, for the strategic partner to come in and, and, and that sometimes happens, sometimes it doesn't, and then you know other other sort of concerns come up. Um, we were also talking about uh, earlier about like the net asset value, and um, you know how that sort of ties into you know the discounted cash flow and how like other ways you can evaluate uh, some of the mining com- companies. Yep. Um, how do they play into like assessing? Um, whether you're getting a getting like uh, an investment at the right price. Okay, so initially you got the pre-economic uh, preliminary economic assessment. Yeah. Okay, as that resource is further defined and you go into the DFS, yeah. you're going to see it's economically viable. You're going to look at your capacity. You're going to have a pretty good um, estimate of your future cash flows. Okay, and what analysts will do is they'll apply a discount rate. Um, in accordance with the risk. So obviously they yeah. add the risk-free rate and they also add something called the equity risk premium. Yeah. And that's not a standardized figure. It's not a solid figure and it's up for interpretation. As the mining company progresses through its lifespan, there are going to be de-risking events. Okay, so... What's an it, example of one? So one is that from the process of going to an inferred resource, which is... 100% hypothetical essentially. You mm. know something's there but you're not too sure how if it's even economically viable yet. Mm. But as you move from the PEA to your DFS, it's moved from indicated uh, – sorry, inferred, indicated, uh, measured and proven. Yeah. It gives you a lot more – so at that point that becomes a bankable feasibility study and you're going to know exactly what you need. That's basically a, a plan to get the resource out of the ground to production, right? Like it's kind of yeah. the logistics, operations, the you know the uh, partners that need to get involved, um, the government, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and and during this phase as well, you know they're going to be optimizing their metallurgy uh, flow sheet, yeah. and it's going to give them a better idea how they're actually going to process material, some of the associated costs with that, which is going to actually help with the economics moving forward. Um, at this in this point in time as well, they're going to have more sophisticated plans and more in-depth plan about actually how they're going to construct this mine and what's needed. So they're going to have a really be- a better idea as this progresses. And I think that they're all de-risking events. And I think that as they, uh, if they were able to get the funding and they move from uh, a development, uh, from the development side into the operation, hmm. there is a massive change in sentiment on the market and that's where the second part of the Lausanne curve really kicks in. 
because yeah. they've secured the funding, they've de-risked that discount uh, discount rate that had been applied previously to assess that risk is a substantial change and any kind of change in the net uh, asset value, um, it'll be trading at a different multiple and then that's where that explosive growth comes comes from. Yeah. So, you know, once you, um, you know, when you, when you subtract the, the debt and you figure out the net asset value per share price, yep. um, what, like what do you do with that? Why is that important? So if you get an accurate, you know, measurement of what you think a company's worth, what do you do with that? I, uh, so, I mean, the NPV, so the NAV value is generally dictated by the market yeah. and some of these companies are operating at a, at a multiple, right? One thing that I found really interesting and because I've been uh, like studying this for the last couple of weeks as well, yeah. uh, I listened to an interview with a guy called Kevin McLean, right? Mm. And he's, uh, you know, he's claimed to fame as well. I mean, he's, you know, this uh, chief investment officer of a royalty company in America at the moment. But uh, it, it really kind of highlighted to me uh, a few things. So he made a thesis called Valuation Kinetics mm. where he was looking at how these companies uh, are forecasting and, you know, the particular price and they're, as, as, you know, um, putting on a value to a company Mm. On a and a, a on a particular NAV multiple, and some of them are operating at a two x multiple, three x multiple, and he had a really big problem with that because when he was applying his financial model and looking at the discount rate, he hypothetically would say, if I put this much money in, an example was uh, Barrick Gold, right? Barrick Gold, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, he he used this example where it was like, if I was to put buy a share at twenty dollars uh, a share price, okay. Yeah. And I wanted to have a five percent return. He would turn this model into so you're buying an annuity, right? Mm. But he figured that because it worked out that that annu- annuity what's, a, what's in, an annuity? So you're getting paid uh, per year. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like the interest that you're getting per year. Yeah, and how long it would take to recoup that money, right? So. Because Barry Gold at the time had a mine life of fourteen years, and he used this example. He had a problem because the analysts are allocating a price to this company at $20 and that annuity mathematically turned into a perpetuity. So that that investment, he's not paying them to mine for 14 years, which they knew that was the reserve life or estimated the reserve life to be. He's essentially paying $20 for them to fund uh, their mining operations forever. And that was the kind of the basis of his argument and he thought that, that was quite unfair and it was a little bit um, – yeah, did didn't really like it, and it kind of uh, it's renewed my interest. You know, mm. I, I, it was just a new way of looking at it. It was a new term that I hadn't considered before, and you know, I, I encourage anyone to kind of listen to the mining stock uh, education podcast with Kevin McLean. Yeah, I think he's a you know de- he he's given me a lot to think about. So I hope to apply that with with the mines. Uh, you know, we, like you mentioned, fourteen years there. Uh, There'd be other factors in like how long a mine lasts for, like you know, for example, um, you know, the exploration rate, like or how quickly they get the resource out of the ground, and yeah, or how slowly or how quickly. How does that play into sort of the annuity versus the perpetuity? Uh, I, I think it's pretty much dependent on you know 
what multiple they're 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 putting onto it. And sometimes if they're mm. putting on a higher multiple to their NAV value mm. too early on, um, you're at risk of having that. You know, uh, you can look at it from a perpetuity aspect. Yeah. Um. You know. I'm, I'm, yeah. No, I'm still learning about it, but it's definitely uh, something to consider. I yeah. definitely, yeah, would, would look further into it. Speaking of, uh, you know, other resources, um, what, uh, like has there been any other useful tools or any other things that you've looked at um, when assessing like opportunities on the Australian domestic market around mining companies? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, because I'm not the, the best at financial modelling and, and applying the discount rate, these are new concepts to me. Uh, but I found myself earlier on in the Lassonde curve in the pre-discovery phase. So when a mining company, before they get into the drilling results and the discovery phase, they're going to be conducting different sampling. And there's three different perspectives that they take. So they look at the geological formations, they look at the geochemistry data sets, and they look at the geophysical data. And, you know, I've been looking at those processes and I've been learning a little bit of uh, some tricks associated with it. Yeah. And more specifically, I've been trying to... Um, extract advantageous tricks that uh, will help me assess the likelihood that a company will find a deposit and I can kind of get in before that initial surge in share price at the discovery phase. Yeah. So um, like for example, one of them was the geochemistry data sets and looking at, you know, something called the super elements and you divide it by the infra elements and it's going to give you a coefficient. And essentially if that the higher the number is, the better it is because it indicates that the potential deposit isn't at a phase, it hasn't really been eroded. Yeah. Whereas that, you know, a lower number in that, um, with that equation would indicate uh, weathering of that deposit. And I think that is an associated risk to consider. So I'm finding little tricks. As I said, I'm, I'm quite new to this or I've adopted a new kind of perspective and, and realized it. But um, yeah. There, there are, there's a lot of information to kind of run through. Yeah. Uh, so surveying tactics, processing, uh, like you know the type of drilling that they're doing. Uh, it, it's very, very uh, important. It, mm. But more importantly, I mean, well, actually, equally, uh, equally important is to assess the credibility of the management team and whether they do have a good history of being good custodians of shareholder money. Yeah. You know, because before the resource is even defined, I mean, you're pretty much at the mercy of the management. Mm. You know, so you kind of want to look at the capital structure. You want to look at, you know, maybe early indications of how they're going to finance the the operation itself. Uh, but you really do want to, you know, have good management and a good board of directors. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Look, uh, I guess to summarize uh, what we've covered today, we've, we've talked about like, you know, your outlook on – where you think like these commodities are going and, and a bit of analysis around there, some of the tools that you've used to assess, um, you know, the mining opportunities, the, the Lasson curve and different modeling tools. Um, talked about net asset value. Uh, you know, for a lot of investors who haven't dabbled in mining or, or maybe they have and they've been burnt, I think there's this stigma that there's a lot of speculation and risks associated yeah. with these companies but yeah on the other side of that there's a lot of opportunity what would you say to people who are reluctant to invest in mining companies what do you think um what do you think is you know what's your what's your word of advice to them okay look at it from a risk model standpoint right look at everything in terms of risk operational risk executional risk financial risk 
competitive risk. Keep in mind that most mining companies do fail and they don't get to the producing uh, phase. I think that's important to consider, but also de-risk it over time. So like if the market or, you know, sees it as high risk early on, as it's getting through these feasibility studies, you can kind of de-risk it because then after it does secure the funding or if it, if it secures the funding and it does get to that producing phase, it could be really, really profitable. But it's, it's important to kind of uh, to look at every consideration, environmental considerations, permitting rights, um, you know, understanding a little bit more about the resource and its characteristics, mm. you know, the overall market. So keep an eye on obviously the spot price for that commodity, um, but also how they actually are raising money, you know, what financing routes they've taken and what implications that may have um, to other institutional investors later on in the cycle. So uh, one thing that, you know, Kevin uh, McLean spoke about was he didn't really like um, – you know, the management to have too many warrants because it kind of acted like a magnet uh, to the share price if it exceeded, you know, that exercise price later on. I, I encourage everyone to kind of look a little bit deeper into it yeah. um, and also to provide me feedback because it's something that I'm still learning as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm starting to starting to get my head around it and I've started to pick out some pretty, pretty good stocks. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to learn some of these new models, these concepts, uh, you know, things that I, I, I had never heard of before. Yep. And uh, I think we were talking about this earlier. It, the more you sort of look at some of the tools to evaluate things that are maybe a little bit more technical, a little bit more challenge, challenging to grasp the concepts, uh, it's one extra tool that you can use that can give you an edge because generally the harder it is to do something, the more valuable it is to invest your time to figure that thing out yeah, um, because it gives you, you know, as I said, the edge. It's so. Yeah, it's important to know just like to, to, to conclude everything, you know, each of these phases does have a lot of process. You know, there's a lot of considerations in each phase. This is a high-level view of it. However, um, when you do break it down, especially with the metallurgy flow sheet, uh, there, there's a lot to uncover and it's all commodity-specific as well. So... Yeah, definitely look into it. It's gonna you're gonna spend years getting good at this, and I I expect uh, I've got my work cut out for me. But it's very encouraging, and there are opportunities out there, as unlikely as they are. You know, we're looking for winners. Well, hopefully, you guys learned something today. It was a, definitely a very uh, technical topic, but I've uh, you know I've uh, I think Brennan did a really good job breaking down some of the some of the concepts for us. Um, there's just so much to cover in in mining in this sector. So there's definitely going to be a follow-up uh, conversation where we cover some of the other topics. Um, top of your head, is there like a couple of other things that you're looking into that maybe you've thought about but just haven't covered on this podcast? Like is there – can you give us a preview into anything else that we might expect to hear later on or is that a work in progress? Uh, it's a work in progress but I've like one thing that I want to uh, talk about is a podcast called Money of Mine that came out. Yep. I've been following them. I think they I think it's an absolute awesome podcast to follow. I've been learning a lot about it. And I think uh, you know, the nickel landscape, the competitive landscape that's happening in WA and the um the proposed PCAM plants is uh something to kinda to look into further. Nah, sounds good. Well, if you made it this far, thank you so much. Uh we've really had a great time uh doing this podcast and I've got a I'll work with Brendan to add some of 
these uh, resources that we've covered on like the Lasson curve, uh, this podcast and Kevin McLean. So yep. uh, thanks heaps guys.